I was praying for a lot of things. I was praying for y'all as well because I haven't preached in two weeks. And so I prayed that y'all had a hearty breakfast or at least got some snacks in your purse. We have been blessed, though, the last two weeks with some very rich, rich teaching. Amen. Uh, so thankful for Byron and for Ryan the last two weeks of preaching God's word. Last week, I had the opportunity to be in our kids' ministry, and I was able to, to teach uh, the large group lesson in, in the kids' ministry and absolutely had a blast uh, doing it. Um, and after second service, um, second service, uh, Pastor Brian came in, and he was uh, blowing darts out of a gun, uh, popping balloons out of my mouth. Uh, and so we have a lot of fun in kids' ministry. Uh, it also increases your prayer life quite a bit uh, when you hang out with Pastor Brian. <laughs> after second service, I noticed one young man, he will remain nameless because I love him and his family, and I, I just love this kid, but I, I noticed he was crying. And I came over to him and I said, buddy, what's, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? And he said, Pastor Robbie said that we were going to have a special guest today. <laughs> and I said, no, buddy, that, like, that, was, that, that was me. I, I was a special guest. And with tears in his eyes, he said, no, no, no. He said we were going to have a special guest <laughs> and emphasize special so, humility, if you, if you need a little bit of humility, go in the kids' area. They will humble you very quickly. Uh, amen. Uh, so thankful for Pastor Robbie and the work that he and the many volunteers do with our first through sixth graders. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 2 as we continue our walk through the four Gospels, looking at, uh, as best as we can ascertain, the chronological ministry of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And so we have seen that uh, Jesus has uh, been baptized. He has gone into the wilderness. He has returned and he has called his first disciples to himself. And they have left the, the Jordan area of where John was, was baptizing uh, and they headed up uh, north. And now they are going over to Cana in Galilee, which is about roughly estimated about eight miles north of Nazareth. And here we are going to encounter a text today where John shows us the very first miracle of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The book of John is really built around seven I am statements and seven miracles. And this is the first of those seven miracles that is recorded in the gospel of John. Now, some of you may be familiar with this passage of scripture. Uh, let me just say at the outset that this passage of Scripture uh, has nothing to do whether or not it is um, right or it is okay for Christians to drink. That is not the premise of this passage. A lot of people uh, take this passage and try to build upon it something that it was never meant to uh, be teaching us in any kind of way. So this passage of Scripture is not whether or not it is permissible or okay for a Christian to drink alcohol. Uh, in relation to that question, let me just say this. The question isn't so much is it a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to be drunk. The question that I would pose to you, is it wise to drink alcohol? 
that would be the question that I would pose to each and every individual. And if we're really gathering and, and, and trying to ascertain whether or not uh, a follower of Jesus Christ should be drinking, I am reminded of Matthew 26, 29, where Jesus says that I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until heaven. So what I would say is that if you really want to be like Jesus in regards to the consumption of alcohol, then abstain from it until you get to heaven, and then he'll tell you how to work all of that out because he's not drinking until the new kingdom comes. And so maybe it is wise for us to do the same. Again, the question is not whether it is sinful. The question is whether or not it is wise. Now, in our our text, what we're going to see is that the disciples are going to learn a lesson from Jesus that would be good for us to apply to our lives as well. In fact, through observing Jesus at this wedding festival, he is going to show them three truths that they will need to apply to their lives over the subsequent years that will come with Jesus and after Jesus ascends into heaven. And we would be wise to observe these same truths and apply them to our lives as well. Now, when we look at this text, we see that at the culmination of what it is they observed in Jesus, we will see that they saw the manifestation of Jesus's glory, and as a result, they believed in him. And really, the the picture there is that they had greater faith in him. They're already believing in him, but through what we will read here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 of the book of John, we will get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and I pray that each and every one of us will be drawn in with a greater faith to our relationship with Jesus or for the very first time you would begin that eternal relationship with Jesus through the repentance of your sins and the placing of your faith in Jesus. And so we are in John 2, 1 through 12 in a message that I've entitled, The Best is Yet to Come. And that is true For all those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the best truly is yet to come. Let us read the passage of Scripture. Let me make a few comments as we unpack it. And then let me show you those three things that the disciples observed and we would be well to observe as well. It says on the third day, so this is is a Wednesday, uh, and... This would be a young maiden that is being married and not a widow. So in Jewish culture, uh, pretty much all weddings, uh, it would be very abnormal for a wedding to take place on any other day other than than Wednesday. Uh, Young maidens were were married on on Wednesday. Widows uh, that were being remarried were married on Thursday. So here we are on, on the third day, and it's the wedding of a young maiden. Now, we don't know who this young maiden is that that is being uh, married. I think oftentimes I've read all kinds of commentaries that devote large sections of Scripture or large sections of commentary to Scripture uh, where the Holy Spirit remained silent. If the Holy Spirit wanted us to know who it was that was being married at this wedding, he would have told us. I'm amazed at how often people spend so much time debating things that the Holy Spirit obviously didn't think was important for us to know, but he gives us everything that is important for us to know, and so let us discuss those things. 
There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding. Now, the, this wedding, the process of that would have been uh, the, 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 the bridegroom and um, uh, the bridegroom's party would go and would get the bride. At night, they would come with these torches. They would get, get the bride, and then they would take this, this big wedding party back to where the wedding was going to be held, and they would have these large torches, and the, the bride and the groom would walk underneath this canopy, and they would take the, 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 the longest route through the neighborhood that they possibly can through the village so that they could get as many well wishes as they possibly could so it could be as big of a celebration as they possibly could. And so this wedding uh, Jesus is invited to, he comes, whether he was a part of the procession or not, scripture is silent, but he comes with his disciples. Now, this wedding would have lasted uh, up to seven days. Uh, So instead of going off on a honeymoon, they had an open house completely different than what it is that that we do in our culture, in our time. As soon as you get married, hey, you want to get away from everybody as quick as you possibly can. Here, they have an open house. Everybody come and join in on the festivities, and it could have gone for anywhere upwards of seven days. Now, they're at this wedding, and the wine runs out. It says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is a problem. This is a huge social faux pas in, in this day where hospitality is a a part of a a family's honor, and for them to be inhospitable would have brought shame upon this family. Now, why Mary is so concerned with this, we really don't know, but there might be an inclination that she was either in charge or a part of the responsibility of the hospitality team, if you will. And the wine runs out. Now, not only is this a huge social faux pas, But it is such a huge uh, amount of shame that would be heaped upon this family that it was also punishable with a fine. They could have actually been fined for not providing enough food and enough drink for all of the guests. And so we see that they have run out of wine. In verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we read that, and we have a little bit of a problem with that. Jesus seems pretty rude there, doesn't he? But the Greek is not as sharp and not as biting as our English. In fact, the word that we translate woman would really be translated uh, for us today, ma'am. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? It's not as sharp and it's not as biting, but it is Jesus establishing the reality that he is now into his public ministry. He has now stepped in to the very role that he was called to fulfill, that he is establishing for himself the beginning of the kingdom. And therefore, he is showing Mary that I will no longer relate to you as son. I will relate to you as king. For all must bow their knees and all must confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. He says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you may want to highlight, underline, circle, my hour has not yet come. That's going to be one of our main points when we unpack this text. His mother said to the servants, you might want to make note of that as well. That's a very important part of this passage of Scripture. His mother said to the servants... Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine. It's an important part you want to make note of, either mentally or by marking on your Bible there, the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, you have saved the best for last. This the first, sign, first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, the first thing that I want to point out to you, if you're taking notes, that we see in this passage of Scripture that the disciples would have been observing. Now, that's not all 12 disciples. Uh, there's probably six disciples that, that are with uh, uh, Jesus in, in this time. There's James and John. There's Andrew and Peter. There's Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, he hasn't called the other disciples yet. There, there's about six disciples that are with him. Now, we'll read later on in John's gospel that Nathaniel is actually from Cana. So this may be individuals that, that Nathaniel knew. Uh, this may be individuals that Jesus as well knew. Obviously, his mother knew them, uh, for she is a part of this wedding to some degree. The first thing that I want to show you, if you are taking notes, that they observed and that we need to observe is the power of Jesus. That when we see Jesus at work with his very first sign or his very first miracle is that he takes something that is one thing and he transforms it into something that is completely different. Now, what he does is he takes water and he transforms it into wine. It's not a mixture of both. He takes one thing, one substance, and he transforms it into a completely different substance. What this shows us is Jesus' power over creation. This shows us that Jesus has power over creation. Now, what he is doing is he is showing the disciples and the servants that were privy to what is transpiring is that he is showing them that he is God. For only God has power over creation. We see that all throughout various texts of Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of them. In Psalm 147, we read this, that God and God alone covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down the crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. And we see Jesus will later calm the storms just at a mere uh, speaking uh, that he can take the winds and the waves and make them obey to the point that the disciples would say, who is this individual? 
Colossians 1, 16 through 17 tells us that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What Jesus is doing is he is showing his power over creation, which speaks of his person that he is God. Secondly, we see in this reality of the display of the power of Jesus, it's not just Jesus' power over creation, but Jesus' power of transformation. That he does take one thing and make it something completely different. He does take a, 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 a substance and make out of that something that is totally and radically different. We see that Jesus, is, that Jesus has a power of transformation on display here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because he has power over creation and we are created beings, he has the power to take those that are held in bondage and sin. He has the power to take those that are stuck in darkness. He has the power of those that are dead in their trespasses and sins and transform them into the sons and daughters of God Almighty. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That Jesus has the power of transformation. The power of transformation to where we see here in verse 8, we read, or verse 9, that the water now became wine. Jesus Christ has the power of transformation to where the dead now become alive, that the broken now become whole, that the bitter now become joyful, that the burden now become blessed. But some of you may be sitting in this room today and you may say, but when? I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I, I see what is, is said in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I see that the old is gone and the new has come. I, I see this, this reality that you read in Scripture that the dead become alive and the broken are made whole and the bitter are joyful and the burdened are blessed. But when? Because there are times in our lives that we, we don't feel that. There are times in our lives we don't feel blessed. There are times in, in our lives where we don't feel joyful. There are times in our lives where we don't feel whole. There are times in our lives where we don't feel alive in Christ Jesus. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's just words on a page. But when? Well, there's something so powerful in this passage of Scripture that speaks to that very thing. The second thing that I want you to see is the pouring of the servants. The pouring of the servants. Now, I find it very interesting that at the very first miracle of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he didn't choose to use his mother in bringing about the miracle. Nor did he use his disciples to bring about the first miracle. Who is it that he chooses to use? The servants. He's teaching the disciples 
who are beginning to follow him, and he's teaching his mother, who in a very real understanding of who Jesus was, that he was born of the virgin, for she was that virgin, that he is to be the Christ. Their understanding of who Jesus would be was that he was going to be this military, political ruler, throwing off the yoke of Rome, and she's saying, here is a perfect time for you to make known who you are, to start to build up your delegation and your followers and to start making your march towards Rome, gathering up more and more followers as you go, going to Jerusalem to get rid of Rome and ultimately expanding the kingdom. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? For I didn't come for that. And what he wants to teach each and every one of us is that to be a true disciple of Jesus means that you are a servant. It's not about just gathering head knowledge. It's about taking what it is that Jesus shows us in his person and his work and applying it to our lives by submitting to his authority and serving him, being his servants. Now, look what it says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What does it mean to be a servant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It means do whatever he tells you. Not just when it's convenient. Not just the things that make you comfortable. Do whatever it is that he tells you. In fact, we read in John 14, 15, If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Oh, we can sing songs. Oh, how I I love you. We can sing those songs. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, you can tell people in your neighborhood and at your schools, and you can tell people to the very end of the earth, oh, I have how much I love Jesus. But he says, for you to display your love for me, obey and keep my commandments. We're not called to be slaves, but we all called to be the servants of the Most High God, and that is a privilege, and that is an honor. And so here's the situation. A great social uh, faux pas has just happened, and Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. I know that you can do something about this, even though she may have been mistaken of what she hoped the result would be for him stepping into that role. He says that my hour has not yet come, but yet, he steps in, even though it is behind the scenes, and his, uh, his disciples and his mom and the servants will know what has transpired. Nobody else will know. He steps in to this situation, and he tells the servants this. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of those servants, I'm thinking, this brother don't understand what's going on. What did his mom tell him? Fill the water jars with water? Brother, we need wine. We did, that's the problem. It's not that we don't have water. It's that we don't have wine. Can I tell you something? 
You do not have to understand everything to trust God with everything. Oh, we spend so much time. I want to know every, everything. Why am I doing this? What am I doing? Why, why is this happening? What's going to happen? I want, I want turn-by-turn direction. And all that Jesus will give us is turn left. One step at a time. And it's all about trusting the one that is calling us to what it is that he's calling us to. He said, go fill those water jars with water. We see in the response of the servants, we see that they do just that. And we see in the servants their perseverance. We see through their act of faith, we see this perseverance. Notice that when they're told to fill the jars with water, these 20 to 30 gallons, six of them, so there could be up to 180 gallons of water. Notice what it says, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, I don't know how far they had to go to get the water. They had to go to, to some type of a spring, they had to go to some type of well, they had to go somewhere to, to get the water, and they're having to, 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 to carry buckets out to go fill these, these buckets, uh, to ultimately fill these stone jars. They're not going to carry the stone jars. They're going to carry buckets, and they're going to go, and they're going to get the water from wherever it is they're going to get the water, and they're going to come back, and they're going to fill up these stone jars. Now, I don't know about you, how many trips did it take, 14, 15? On about the 11th trip, on about the 9th trip, on about the 8th trip, I'm thinking he's tripping. You know what I mean? I'm not seeing nothing happen. I'm pouring water in. They need wine. He's told us to go get water. I don't, nothing is happening. I don't see any Napa Valley anything jumping off at this point. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get another bucket of water. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to pour it. And you know what? I'm done. It's 80% full. It's more than Bob filled up. Bob's only got 50% filled up. I did more than Bob did. Surely that's enough for the one who has called me to fill up these stone jars. I can go before him and say, well, listen, I did more than Bob. I did more than, than everybody else. No, they kept going, and the water didn't be, become wine until it touched the brim. How often do we act the same way? Lord, I don't understand what you're having me do. This don't make any kind of sense. This is what I need, but you're giving me this. You must not understand what it is that, 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 that I need. And then we start comparing our lives to other individuals' lives. And, well, I've done more than this person. How come something hasn't started to happen yet? I've done more than them. I've gone and I, I've done 80%. Is 80% not enough? They filled it to the brim. And you know why they filled it to the brim? Because they were told to fill the jars. It's about obedience. And oftentimes do we try to water down what it is that God has called us to do. They went and they just kept pouring. Listen to me. Some of you have been praying and begging God for months and months and months. And your marriage looks no different. 
The argument seemed to be growing more and more. There's, there's a greater distance between you and your spouse. Listen to me in this place today. Just keep pouring. Some of you have children that are wayward. Some of you have children that are living of the world, and you have grabbed bucket after bucket after bucket, and you haven't seen anything transpire, and you are at the point of giving up and laying your bucket down. Just keep pouring. Some of you have been sharing the gospel with a friend or a family member and you've gotten bucket after bucket after bucket and you keep pouring and pouring and pouring and you're at a point in time where you're ready to lay the bucket down. You're ready to sit down. You're ready to give up all hope for that individual and God's word for you today is just keep pouring. Why? Because that's what he told us to do. We're not to do anything different until he gives us something different to do. We see their perseverance. We see the way that they continue to fill up water bucket after water bucket. Just keep pouring. Secondly, we see in the pouring of the servants, the servant's perspective. We notice that After the water became wine, in verse 9, it says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. No, the the, the head waiter didn't know where the the wine come from, but the servants knew. See, there's this perspective that we have as followers of Jesus Christ that we need to live our lives within. And that is an understanding that we know that there's a God in heaven who is sovereign over his creation, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And that three days later, the story continued because he rose from the grave, appearing to over 500 at one time and many individuals over 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven as king of kings and lord of lords and one day he is coming back and we live in between his first coming and his second coming and it adds a perspective when everybody else doesn't know they don't have a clue why the world is the way the world is why life is the way life is what is the meaning of life what is my identity what is my purpose where's my hope where's my joy and they have absolutely no clue so like the head waiter they go to the wrong person to give that person praise we know that it's Jesus and so Therefore, we live our lives with the perspective eternally focused in on our king because we know that even in the suffering there is to be had joy because what we experience in this life will one day give way to the glory that is to come in the next. There's a perspective that we must live our lives. How do you go get that next bucket? The perspective of understanding. The world may think I'm crazy. And it may not make sense, but I don't have to understand everything to trust God with everything. I'm going to go get that next bucket, and I'm going to pour. And I don't know what God's going to do. He may not cure that cancer. He may not restore your marriage. He may not bring those children back. 
But is he not worthy of us continuing to pour our lives out like a drink offering for the Lord, as Paul said in Philippians 2.17, that I am to be a vessel, you pour into me what it is you desire, and you pour out and use me how you desire, and I'm going to keep pouring, and I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to keep serving, and whatever it is that how these things turn out, Lord, that is your will, and I'm going to trust in your will because you're a good and a mighty and a merciful God, so I'm going to go get that next bucket and I'm going to keep pouring because that's what you've called me to do. Only when you have that eternal perspective does that even make sense. For if we are to serve Jesus in this lifetime alone, we are to be most pitied out of all people of this world. But because we have that eternal hope and that perspective, it makes sense to go get that next bucket because he's a God of miracles and we don't know when that next bucket is going to transform that situation through God's hand at work in our lives and in those individuals' lives. Thirdly, or excuse me, uh, Philippians 3, uh, 13 through 14 says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a servant of God. I press on toward the goal. What, what is the goal? What is the goal? Riches here on this earth? Status here on this earth? Comfort in life here on this earth? Is that the goal? No. I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That we would live for that. For that gives each and every bucket we go to retrieve. It gives it meaning and it gives it purpose forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's all kinds of things behind us that the devil wants us to look at and revisit. And Jesus says, no, 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 keep your eyes on me. Put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. Keep coming. Keep coming. I've got some far greater plan for you than you could ever dream or imagine because the best is yet to come. Thirdly, we see the pinnacle of history. What, what is this passage? Jesus is teaching the disciples and us a very important truth about being servants, about his deity and his power. But primarily what we see in this text is that he is trying to get his, his mother and his disciples and us these many 2,000 years later to understand what his hour truly is. Notice back in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the hour that, that he speaks of, we'll see all through the book of John, is a recurring theme. In fact, it's building and building and building to the very hour. In fact, John dedicates more of his gospel to the last week of Jesus than any other uh, author of any other gospel. In John 7, verses 6 through 8, his, his brothers tell him, hey, why don't you go to Jerusalem? 
If somebody that really wants to be famous and really wants to be known for the things that you're doing, they don't do them in secrecy. Go up to Jerusalem, show everybody who you are so everybody knows who you are. They're making fun of them because it says that they didn't even believe. And Jesus says, listen, your time is always now. In other words, you're always looking for, for status. The world is always looking for status, but my hour has not yet come. You go on a little bit further in, in uh, John 8, 20. He's teaching in the temple area, and they become so enraged that they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. They want to take him. But it says they could not because his hour had not yet come. Then in John 12, 23, we see this change of verbiage in regards to the hour where Jesus is saying, now my time has come. Now my hour has come. In fact, in John 12, 27, he says this, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Then we see in John 13, 1, he talks about how his hour had come. In John 17, 1, he talks about that his hour is now here. His hour is his crucifixion. What he came to do, to die for your sins and for my sins. It's the very pinnacle of history. The resurrection is confirmation that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and accomplished on the cross what he said he would accomplish. The resurrection is a confirmation that Jesus accomplished what he said he would accomplish. The second coming only means anything of any substance and importance if he is the same one who died on the cross for our sins. Do you know Muslims believe that Jesus will come back? The Muslim faith teaches that Jesus will come back, that he has just disappeared out of sight. He's just one of the great prophets and that he will come back. And when he comes back, he's going to break every cross and point everybody to Allah. See, his second coming means absolutely nothing if in his first coming he didn't die on the cross for your sins and my sins. There are plenty of people that believe Jesus is coming back. But what Jesus? Well, the Jesus that I know will return is the Jesus in Scripture who said that he willingly took nails in his wrists and in his feet hanging in naked shame for the very sins that you committed and the very sins that I committed because love has no greater form than this that one would lay down his life for his friends. That is the love of our Savior. The hour he speaks of is the very pinnacle of history. And in the transforming of water into wine, he is foreshadowing what will be established upon the cross when he dies. Jesus is foreshadowing or Jesus is pointing to the new covenant. Now, John, unlike Luke, never really clarifies Jewish life or Jewish culture to his readers. He doesn't feel the need to do that. He's not, he's writing to everybody. And he doesn't feel the, the need to, to take a, a Jewish cultural truth and try to describe it. So why is it that he points out that these six stone water jars are there for the Jewish rite of purification? 
that when they would come, they would wash their hands, they would cleanse themselves externally. In fact, Jesus would address this later on in the Gospels where he would say, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of a man. That it's not about washing hands and having an external cleanliness, it's talking about an internal transformation. You can look as clean as you possibly want, as polished as you possibly want on the outside, and you could still be nothing more than a mausoleum of dead bones. And he takes what it was that was a sign of external cleanliness and he transforms it into a substance where at the last supper he will hold up a cup after breaking the bread as we read in Luke 22:20 and says and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Some of you sit in here today and you are weary and tired because you believe your relationship with Jesus is built upon your self-righteous standing before him. And you're running to various jar after various jar after various jar trying to cleanse yourself with something that has no power or ability to wash and cleanse you of the sins that exist in your life. And you're tired Because you're going to jar after jar after jar of religion, trying to clean yourself up externally when the gospel says that you will not see the fruit externally until you deal with the root internally. And the only way to deal with the root is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he is not concerned with outward moral uh, 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 displays. He is concerned with taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh in such a way that the old is gone and the new has come and he makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus where therefore is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, stop washing at stone jars and come underneath the plunge of the blood of Christ for only it can purify your conscience 
and give you a right standing before God Almighty. What we see in the transforming of water into wine is that this old covenant that we that God has been trying to show you can't live up to, that is gone. There is a new covenant that is coming. My desire is not for outward cleanliness, but to give you a brand new heart to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And what is sad is this many 2,000 years later, especially in the Bible belt, in the buckle of the Bible belt, we have fallen victim to believing that our salvation could be found in religious stone jars and set it at the foot of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we think church attendance can save us. We think being a good person can save us. We think doing the right things and saying the right things can save us. We think that if we just change outwardly that our heart will follow, but our heart is more deceitful than anything else in this world. And so therefore what we need is a new heart, not a new jar. And God Almighty sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that you would stop finding unfulfillment in those stone jars and start finding your salvation and your hope and your joy and your peace at the foot of the cross for only there will you find it for he's doing a new thing secondly we see that Jesus points to the new creation the servant comes and says sir typically what happens is people serve the best stuff first and then they save the the, the cheap stuff for last, but you've actually reversed it. And what he's saying is the best, you saved the best for last. And that is true with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The best truly is yet to come. He points forward to a day where there will be a city that has no cemetery, has no ambulance, has no hospital, has no army, has no weapons, for they will all be beat into plowshares. There will be no sickness, no disease. He points forward to a kingdom that cannot be shaken in a city that truly is set upon a hill where we will experience complete joy and complete peace. And Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, we have heartache and pain and suffering and tribulation in this world. And as much as they grieve our hearts, they will pale in comparison to the joy. They will pale in comparison to the celebration. They will pale in comparison to the peace. They will pale in comparison to that which awaits us and the glory that is to come. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He's saving the best for last. This text reminds me of a pastor friend of mine that I used to serve with at First Baptist Broken Arrow named Kevin Cottrell. And Kevin would tell the story 
of a woman who met with the pastor while she was on hospice. She was getting ready to transition out of this world into the very city that we just talked about and into the, the glory that is to come. And she said, Pastor, these are the songs that, that I want sung. This is, she had it all laid out. Listen, you want to help your pastor have it all laid out, okay? She had everything laid out. And at the very end, she had very specific instructions that she was to be buried with a fork. And the pastor is looking at all this and kind of, all right, I want to honor your wishes and, you know, we'll do everything it is that, that you, you have here on, on this set of list of, of what you want this to look like. But he got to the end of it and it got the better of him of what was that and why it was that she wanted to have a fork buried with her. He said, ma'am, I've served you as pastor for just a short period of time for he was new to that church. Could you explain to me why it is that you want to be buried with, with a fork? And she said, oh, listen, I've, 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 I've grown up all my life in this church. And when I was a little, little kid, we would have a, a potluck. So they were Baptists. And, and they would, we would have a potluck. And after the, the, the meal, I would get ready to go throw my, my plate away. And my mom would always stop me and say, now, 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 now keep, your, keep your fork. Because the best is yet to come. And you know what, Pastor? There would be these desserts that were brought after the meal and I would have that fork and I would be able to indulge in some of that sweet goodness that came after that meal she said I want to be buried with that fork so that when everybody walks by my casket they will be reminded oh there may be tears in the night but the morning is going to produce joy because the best is yet to come listen to me church Keep your fork. Keep your fork. Because the best is yet to come.